All right, Two Cities Church, good morning. It's a new year. We are not slowing down. We are not standing still. Last week, we gave you guys a ministry plan. If you weren't here, you can grab one of those on the counter on your way out. The ministry plan was attempting to do two things, tell you where we're going and what your role is. Our plan, your part, that was last week, critical events, sermon series, big dates, all excited about that. This week you came in and we gave you a prayer guide. So we did planning and praying. Why? Because we believe in both. We hope you believe in both as well. We want to be very strategic. This is where we're headed. This is where we're going and very sensitive to the spirit. We want to be very focused and very flexible. And so I hope you're going to take this prayer guide and take it seriously. Now, why did we do 21 days of prayer? Uh, it's not that 21 is a biblical number. Uh, it's that we feel like three weeks is short enough to sprint and long enough to make a difference. And why would we give you a prayer guide? Because when we talk to people, we realize there are two reasons people don't pray who otherwise would like to pray. Well, there's probably more than that. But there's at least two reasons. One reason is people don't know where to start. And the second reason is people don't know what to say. And people are tired, maybe you're tired, of praying about the same things in the same way. So we figured instead of just telling you pray more, we might try to help you. So we gave you this guide. We are going to see it starts tomorrow. It's seven days a week. It's a short amount of scripture to read. It's some prayer prompts. And if you've been following along with us, we're going to be praying for our Hold the Rope partners. So the partners that we were excited about and gave to and celebrated, we're now going to be as a church praying for them over the next three weeks, 21 days. Uh, so let me just encourage you as well that if you're not in a community group, you're not going to get all that you could probably even out of this prayer guide. Bring your Bible or your device and your prayer guide to a community group and pray together for these needs. And now when you open up the prayer guide, some of you got here early, you come through a little bit. You saw in there an F word, fasting. Okay. Have you ever heard of that word? Some of you go, I could lose a few pounds. That's not what we're talking about here. What fasting is, is fasting is when you say no to your flesh to say yes to your soul. Fasting is the way you say, God, I'm serious. And we're saying, could you fast one meal or one day a week and, uh, and use that time to go deeper with God and to pray for people and to get into your Bible. And so people go, do I have to fast food? Well, no, some of you have medical issues. And, but most people who go, I don't want to fast food. I want to fast social media. They need to fast food. Okay. Right. The rule is you don't have to fast food unless you don't want to, then you definitely have to. Okay. <laughs> Guys, what, this is our hope. We don't want to only pray, right? There are some people, probably not many people, but there are some people who they only pray and they use prayer. This is usually very charismatic women. They use prayer as an excuse not to do anything. I prayed about it. Praying is not enough. We want to pray and we want to plan. We want to trust God and we want to move into the future. We believe God is sovereign and we are responsible. So let's pray and then we're going to dive into Deuteronomy. Let's pray. Lord, would you make us a people of prayer? Your house should be called a house of prayer. That's what Jesus said. That prayer is the place of intimacy, prayer is the place of power, prayer is the place of dependence, Lord. For some of us, maybe many of us, we don't pray nearly what we could or should or want to. And I pray you would use this, this guide in the next 21 days to reignite a passion for prayer. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so there's many different metaphors for life. Maybe you've heard them, right? Uh, life's a game. You ever met a person who thinks life's a game, right? Life's a game. You got to get on the right team. There are winners. There are losers. You got to learn how to play the game. Uh, other people say, no, life's not a game. Life is an adventure. There's always another hill to climb. There's always another mountain to scale. There's always another vacation to have and see something. Other people feel like life's a party. You ever met that person? They're normally extroverted right? Everything's about knowing people and having fun and life's short. Well, the Bible gives us one main metaphor for life, and it's a race. 
If you'll turn to Deuteronomy 31, we're going to see today Moses pass on the faith to Joshua and the people. Now, here's what's interesting. When you think about life as a race or the Christian life as a race, you've probably heard that before. If you've been in church, you've heard that. Well, let me tell you how to think about it wrongly first. It's not a sprint. If you ever meet a brand new Christian, they treat the Christian faith like it's a sprint. They're like, I'm going to read the whole Bible in a month. You're like, that's a lot of Bible in a month. <laughs> I think you're going to get worn out. Um, what happens if sprinting, you know, you, uh, you get exhausted, you get discouraged. Sprinting thinks the race is short. So I know what you're thinking, Kyle, I know what you're going to say. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Well, a marathon's a better way to think about it. A marathon basically says it's a long race. I better pace myself. Sometimes I'm running uphill. Sometimes I'm going downhill. Sometimes the wind's at my back. Sometimes the wind's in my face. Fair enough. But the marathon mindset, though better than the sprint mindset, is still kind of selfish. It's still about you. You and your marathon that you're running. The Bible's biblical picture is that of a relay race. We are running a very long relay race where we are to pass the baton to the next generation. There's actually a race called the Aikiden, I think it's called, uh, race in Japan. It's 661 miles long, run by six men or women, and they have to pass the baton. And the reason I say this is today we're going to watch Moses pass the baton. And this is so important because some of you, your parents never pass the baton to you. You're like, I have to learn everything myself. I don't know how to be a dad. I don't know how to be a mom. I don't know how to make money. I don't know how to save money. I don't know how to walk with God. I don't know how to do devotionals. No one ever passed me the baton. And then you can look around our city. The his I love Winston-Salem so much. The history of our city is just people dropping the baton. Why is the banking industry in Charlotte? You know, Wachovia started here and bb and It's like somebody dropped the baton somewhere. Why do we go into all these churches and you're massive and you're like, someone paid millions and millions and millions of dollars for this and there's seven people in here. Our city is the story. Many cities are. Somebody didn't pass it or somebody didn't pick it up. And this is hard. Here's what they call this in the business world. And many of you are in the business world. They call this succession. It's such a big deal that HBO has like a four season show called Succession. It's one of their most popular shows ever, and it's a show about basically a multimedia empire and the inability of the CEO to pass it on to any of his kids. Succession is never easy, but also never optional. We're living in a time where the baby boomers are retiring and dying, and there is a massive redistribution of wealth, property, possessions, and a leadership vacuum. And people don't know what to do. Have you seen what Disney did? Do you know that Bob Iger, he was an amazing CEO. He turned Disney into a multimedia empire and he postponed his retirement four times. And then he passed it off to a guy you probably never heard of, Bob Chapik, who ruined everything. And he's fired now. And Bob Iger's back in and they got to refigure out a succession plan. We don't want to be like that. Moses is going to show us today how to pass on the faith. Here's the big idea. How do we pass on the faith and how do we keep a first generation faith? I told you last week that what tends to happen is one generation believes, the next assumes, the next forgets, the next forsakes. And it's our job to pass on a vision and value of God to the next generation. But it has to start with us. Look, look. let's go to chapter 31, verse one. We're gonna cover four chapters quickly. Uh, here's what it says. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I'm 120 years old today. Now, most of you are not going to live to be 120. 
It's kind of a sobering thought, but you're going to get seven or eight decades and two to four kids. That's what you get. That's what the average American gets. You're getting seven to eight decades and two to four kids. What are you going to do with it? Well, Moses says, I'm 120. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over to this Jordan. Moses knows he's going to die. See, why is succession necessary? Succession wouldn't be necessary if no one died and if no one got old, but everybody's life and leadership ends at some point. What I love about this is Moses actually sees it. The number one reason succession doesn't work is that the older generation won't leave or they won't let go. That's why it doesn't work. So Moses says, okay, I got to get Joshua here. Look here, verse three, the Lord, your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you, before you, so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. See, Moses is telling us something really important. He's going to say, leaders change, but the ultimate leader never changes. And what what he's going to pass on to people, and this is what we want to pass on. So what do you want to pass on to your kids? You don't really want to pass on like just practices. What you want to pass on to your kids, what you want to pass on to the next generation is a vision and values. So you don't pass on, like, why doesn't, and we're not against Sunday school. We don't do Sunday school here, but I'm just going to give you church examples because it's what I know best. Um, You don't pass on Sunday school. You pass on a value for teaching. You pass on a value for every small group teaching. You pass on a value for meaningful community. That's the value. You don't pass on vehicles, what holds the value. That's what gets confusing. You don't pass on like a hymn book. You pass on a value for worship. You don't pass on the four spiritual laws, if you ever heard of that. A lot of people who were on college campuses on the 80s and 90s had the four spiritual laws. You don't pass on evangelism explosion. These are all like church programs. You pass on a vision and value to be used by God in the life of other people. We have to understand, see, bad leadership tries to just pass on the vehicle and doesn't understand we actually have to pass on something deeper, the value and the vision. But here's what people need to experience. Look at verse four. It says this, and the Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og, those were kings, the kings of the Amorites into their land when he destroyed them. So basically he's, he's telling them this. this, is so important. God's going to do through you what you saw him do through other people. One of the things that we wanna have people experience in our church is God really working and moving, especially our middle schoolers, our high schoolers, our college students. So they have such an experience of God at work that when they go somewhere else, they graduate and they get a job or they go to trade school or whatever they do, they move somewhere else. They go, I've gotta be a part of a church like this. So give you my story, I came to Christ in public high school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania when I was 16, I was a sophomore. The cool thing is I saw about 10 other people come to faith in Christ in my high school. You think that didn't affect me? So I I saw 10 people who didn't know Jesus learn to know and love Jesus who were not from Christian homes. I saw it all happen when they were in high school. So I went to Elon going, I think people can become Christians. I think God changes people's lives because I experienced it. The second thing we need to pass on is ownership. Look at verse five. And the Lord will give them over to you. So God works through other people, but God also works through you. And you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. He calls them to personal ownership of the vision and values. And he's going to give them four things. And this is the rest of the sermon for those of you who take notes. He's going to give them a plan to execute. That's chapter 31. 31 is Moses' plan. Chapter 32, he gives them a song to sing. 
Chapter three, he gives them a, chapter 33, he gives them a blessing. In chapter 34, they have a funeral. And if you wanna know how do we pass on the faith to the next generation, we have a plan to execute, a song to sing, a blessing to give, and a funeral to have. So let's look at all those. First, let's look at the plan. Here, here's the plan. Verse seven, then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord your God has sworn to their fathers to give them and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not, be, do not fear or be dismayed. There are three parts of a plan that I want us to have. You have to have a plan. Where do you need a plan? Anywhere you wanna make progress, right? So you need to have a plan here. There's three parts of the plan. The plan needs to involve people, right? The plan can't just be you and, you and yourself and, you know, a book. The plan needs to involve other people. Moses personally selects Joshua wants to, Joshua wants to involve, him, uh, involve his life in him. Here's the key thing. It's all about having conversations with people that we love that we want to pass the faith on to. See, actually, the first thing you'll see here is that Moses values Joshua and Joshua values Moses. Do you see what's happening here? Both generations value each other. Now, we live in a time where the generations don't value each other, right? What do old people think about younger people? They're lazy. That's what we think. They're inexperienced. That's what I think about people who are younger than me. That's what older people think about me. And what do young people think about old people? They're old. <laughs> What do they know? They're stuck in their ways. They don't know technology. They don't understand the modern problems. They don't understand the modern opportunities. The Bible teaches wisdom of the old with strength of the young. Now, this is so simple. I tell you here, I got to keep things simple because I went to public high school, so things have to stay simple for me, okay? But, but here, here's what happens. You have to have lots of conversations with people you love and want to pass the faith on to. Too often, we think we need to have the conversation. Have you ever heard that? Like your son's turning 10, 11, 12, or your daughter's turning 10, 11, 12, and you're like, I need to have the conversation with you. That's awkward. <laughs> That's really awkward for an 11-year-old boy to have never talked to his dad about sex or anything like that, and then to have like a long conversation about it. The truth is he's been having conversations about it with his friends for years. You need to be the one that learns how to have conversations normally and naturally about important things. I think the best way to do this is at your dining room table. What if you started by, and I learned this from somebody else, saying, what is your high and what is your low? We do that with our kids. And, and you know, when they're five, they're like, I, I didn't get dessert tonight. That's my low. It's like, your life is so easy. Stop it. <laughs> if that's your low, then you're, you're living a very good life. The reason that you start talking to them about their high and low when they're five or six is because when your daughter comes home at 16 and a boy at school called her ugly, she might tell you because you created that type of environment in the home in which the fine china of your life can be shared. So you have to figure out how to have individual, meaningful conversations with people. The second thing is this. Look at verse nine. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into all of the elders. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men and women and little ones, and the sojourner with your towns, within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law. And that their children, you'll see the generational um, mindset there, 
who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So the plan has to involve people, and the plan has to be about making God's word central in the home. Now, I'm not going to tell you how you need to do that. We're not going to get religious and legalistic. I actually was mentored uh, for a while by a pastor, and he did morning and evening devotions with his family seven days a week, kind of intense. I mean, Margie and I went over there for dinner, and like, all right, it's time for devotions. Like, even though we're here and we're guests, we're going to do devotions? Okay, let's do it. And we just, and we just sat down and, all right, we're in First Timothy chapter 2. Everyone turn there. And his six-year-old's like giving this amazing answer. I'm like, I am a terrible human being. <laughs> what am I doing with my life? Um, but the thing about, devo- and we're all about devotions. I'm about personal devotions. I'm about family devotions. But I think the negative of family devotions, if that's the only thing you do, you might teach your kids that the Bible is something we talk about for five or 10 minutes a day, and then we don't talk about it ever again, right? There's the religious dad. All right, guys, no more fun. Everyone get around here. We're going to do devotion. It's time to talk about the Canaanites and circumcision. It's like, oh, dad, religious dad. What if you found out a way to just normally, naturally talk about the Bible and the ways that it intersects your life? Maybe even joke with people from the Bible. i I my kids recently, my son was complaining about some of his homework. I said, complaining about your homework. It's hard, isn't it? Was it easy for Abraham to leave his father's house? Was it easy for Moses to walk through the wilderness? He's like, dad, what are you even talking? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just being silly. But I, want, I, want, I just want to talk about the Bible. I just want it to be. Now, you've got to figure out how to do this. So here, here, I think the question is, what does your home feel like? Because the question is, if, if, if the word's not at the center, something's at the center. Most homes, it's screens, right? I, I've told you this before, but the coming generation seems to not like, like the young people, they seem to not like screens as much as they're getting older because they see how much they took their parents away from them. We have screens on our watches and screens on our phones and screens on our iPads and screens on our laptops and screens in our bedroom and televisions everywhere. We're not anti-television, but... The screen becomes central, especially when you realize it's a great babysitter once your kids get three years old. If it's not screens, it's sports, right? Club sports. The lie that if you spend $50,000, your kid will play bad division three sports. <laughs> studies. Studies. We love studies. The good is always the enemy of the great. The good is always the enemy of the best. So what does it feel like to, instead of having studies or screens or sports, what does it look like to have scripture as a center? I think it has to do with the songs that you sing in the home. We're not against secular music. But do you have any worship music playing? Do you have a home like that? We have found that actually as our kids get older, Christian rap is awesome. So the other day, this is a true story. I walk into our kitchen and my six-year-old is singing, Lord, kill me if I don't preach the gospel. I was like... It was like, it was literally shocking. I was like, what in the, he does not know exactly what he's, he's singing Lecrae. It is so intense. He's singing about martyrdom. But there's something getting into them, you know? And so the first thing is you have, it has to be about people. It has to be about making the word central. It's the stories you tell. What are the stories that you tell from your days at work? 
We recently had an event where our family, we were at a larger family function. We're driving back in the car, and one of my kids starts asking about certain family members. Are they a believer? And I just thought, we're about to have a real serious conversation here that's going to have different implications. And they're going to ask even more questions. But all of a sudden, salvation becomes real, and Christian and non-Christian becomes real. We've got to figure out how to do that. I've told you before the story of when we were driving and we were talking about how there's this, you know, I live right near the hospital, and I said, guys, there's not going to be, this is years ago, I said, guys, there's not going to be any hospitals in heaven. All of a sudden, I took something that they see every day, and I talked about heaven, and I brought the two together. It's not easy to do, but we need to figure out how to do it more. We need to have a plan that's about people. We need to have a plan that makes the word central. But the plan also, look what he says in verse um, verse 11, verse 14, I'm sorry, it says this. This is the third part about the plan. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in the pillar of a cloud, and a pillar of a cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. This, that I know of, is the only time where God gathers Moses and Joshua together, the current leader and the future leader, to give them a word, and it's not an encouraging word. I want you to see what he says. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Your plan needs to involve people, your kids at least. Your plan needs to be about figuring out how based on your life stage, lifestyle, personality, how you get the word to be central in your home. The third is it needs to take human sinfulness and human weakness into account. Your kids are sinners. And what happens is, and we've seen this, we're talking to some leaders in the student ministry, and they said in the student ministry, there's two things parents struggle with. One, to realize their kid is really a sinner. Well, Johnny could never. It's like, Johnny could. Johnny probably will. Okay? Johnny's a sinner. Or they feel like if Johnny does something, they're so embarrassed. They don't know how to... They discover their kid's looking at pornography. It's like, they're so embarrassed. They don't know what to do. We don't want to be naive about the temptations and struggles that this current generation is going through. You know, I'm 38 years old. The iPhone came out the year after I graduated from college. I, I don't know what it's like to have the iPhone as a middle school or high school or even as a college student. Back when I was dating Margie, I had 200 texts a month. I was still on that plan. <laughs> I had seven a month, or seven a day. I knew that. I could send four, and she could send three, or I could send three, and just send four. That's it. It's a different world we live in now. So to, to look at pornography, you used to have to go to a shady store in the middle of the night and hope no one saw you. Or you'd have to grab a Playboy far away from somewhere. Today, it's everywhere. Every generation has struggled with anxiety, but every generation didn't have social media. When I used to have a bad day at school and I went home, the day was over. No one could follow me home. No one could communicate with me while I was at home, and I couldn't see what anybody was doing while they were at home. Now, with social media, everybody follows everybody home all the time. And so it's like, well, we shouldn't be surprised. And we need to figure out what are the unique temptations. Every generation is going to struggle with lust. Every generation is going to struggle with worry and anxiety. But when you add the technology... Today, we need to be even more awake and aware of how to help this generation.
And this is, by the way, why we're in community groups and why we need each other, because parents need each other. And parents need to open up about the struggles that they're having. So we need a plan. The plan needs to be about people. The plan needs to be about getting God's word central. And it needs to understand that sin is out there and temptation is real. So look what he gives them. Look at verse uh, chapter 31, verse 19 says this. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. So what he gives them, this is so interesting. First, he gives them a plan, but then he gives them a song. Why a song? What is a song? Well, music is that which is probably most memorable. In, in fact, people who have Alzheimer's, um, they can't remember often their name or their kid's name or their spouse's name, but if you will remind them of a childhood song, they can sing it in its entirety. There's something about music, right? Music is a, I think a good way to think about music is it's a portal into the past. Like they say that the, the average adult's favorite music to see if this isn't true for you. Your favorite music is the music you listen to between ages 16 and 22. Even to this day, that's probably your favorite music when it comes on because it, it tended to almost calcify your personality at that time. So for me, growing up, listening to Dave Matthews Band, I know I'm gonna doubt my, date myself just for a second. But I can, if the song to this day, if the song Crash Into Me comes on, you're like, why are we talking about this? <laughs> If the song Crash Into Me comes on, literally I'm transported back into Tim Pierce's basement shooting pool and being in fourth grade. I can just, it's just, I'm a fourth grader again. I can feel it almost. If you play Crush, I'm in middle school. I'm listening to something they called back in the day a CD player. There's these CD, you guys get it, okay. Um, if, if you put on the space between, I'm, I'm driving in my 1996 green Saab to school. And I, it's the first CD I ever listened to when I drove in the car by myself. We all have those moments, those songs that take us back to certain places. This is why we normally, a little behind the scenes here, we normally launch new songs with new series in this church. Because when you sing the song Egypt, we want it to help calcify what God's doing in your life through the book of Exodus. We'll often think, what song goes with this scripture to help impress it? Here's the bigger principle, because it's like, well, what do you, some of you are like, I'm not musical. What am I going to do? Give my kid a song? Here's the principle. Are you giving your kids anything worth remembering? That's the principle. Because music is that which you remember. Why did we give you a ministry plan that had the camp dates and the mission trips and the retreats and the catalytic events and when's kids week is? Because we believe those are miles, markers, you know, milestones, mountaintops, memories that can be made in people's lives, and we need it. Life is hard, and there's lots of temptation. And what happens, there's an old saying that the devil beckons at every fork in the road. And you've seen this, right? Somebody was good in high school, and then they got into college, and the devil beckoned, and they went on a different way. Or they were good in college, and then they got that job in the big city, and they were away from everybody. Or they met somebody, and it wasn't a Christian, but at least they believed in God. And you can see at different times, multiple times in your life, you're going to be tempted to go in a different direction and you're going to need to remember things from the past. Commitments that you made, beliefs that you have. So first he gives them a plan, second a song, third a blessing. Look at chapter 33. So the song was in chapter 32, the blessings in 33. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. So what does that mean? We don't. When's the only time we say blessing? 
we bless people. When they sneeze, you know, and that, that has something to do with like back in the day, long, 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 long time ago, when people, you know, would sneeze, it usually meant they were getting sick. And so they would pray over them. And so that's kind of been left over. The only other time I thought of like where we use this idea of blessing is usually if a young man, this is not really in the world, this is more in the church. If a young man would like to marry a woman and he's about to pop the question, he will normally want to meet with or at least get a phone call with her father and ask for his blessing. And that's really what this is more talking about. It's, blessing means this, I want good for you. That's what you're speaking when you speak a blessing over somebody. And it's interesting, Moses, he's, this is how he's thinking, I'm about to die and I want to bless somebody. He's not the first. If you know Genesis 27, if you're familiar with the story of Isaac, Isaac's getting old and he can't see. And one of the things he wants to do before he dies is he wants to bless Jacob and Esau. That's a huge part. That's actually the very center of the book of Genesis. And it sets the direction for both of their lives going forward, the blessing. But that, that's in chapter 27. Then in chapter 48 of Genesis, Joseph gets word that his dad, Jacob, is dying. And I don't know what you would think if you found out your dad was dying. The first thing he thinks is, I have to get my kids to their grandfather so that he can say a final blessing over them. Mom and dad, sometimes there's a certain blessing only you can say. Grandma and grandpa, sometimes there's a certain blessing only you can say. A couple weeks ago, I had an opportunity, uh, an older couple in our church, or grandparents, they came up to me and they said, Pastor Kyle, do you have a few minutes? Uh, I'd like you to pray over some Bibles after the service. I said, well, of course, let's do it. I didn't know all that it was gonna entail. We go over there and there's eight Bibles for each one of their eight grandkids with their notes in the Bible from areas that they have read and that God spoke to them. And they were saying, my one grandkid's this age and my the other granddaughter's this age and one's really young and one's really old and we're hoping, we're not sure where they all are spiritually. You wanna talk about a generational blessing? You wanna talk about a marker? You want to talk about a song to remember? There it was. Now, here's what's interesting. Moses blesses, and I don't have time to get into it. You can look in chapter 33. He blesses each one of the tribes differently. So he doesn't do a generic blessing. He doesn't do like um, all tribes, may you, these five things happen for you. He takes each one and blesses them. I think it's a picture that we need to bless people individually and especially bless our kids personally. What does he do? He blesses them based on who they are. He bless, if you, you have to study this to get, see it all. He blesses them based on who they are, the struggles in their past, and the opportunities in their future. So when I think about, you know, when I pray for my kids, a lot of times I'll just say to them, get over here, I'm gonna bless you. And I will bless them based on their personality and their gift set. So Elon, my youngest, who's six, I mean, my dad said when he was when when Elon turned three, my dad said, I think he's gonna play rugby. I was like, I don't even think there's rugby in Winston, but you know, I don't even think I want him playing rugby, but okay. You know, but it was just he's he's got this kind of just tough, he's just a go-getter, he's tough. And so I always pray that God would use his strength for good and not evil. William is my old oldest son, my middle child, very sensitive. So I always pray that he would be sensitive to the right things and that he would be careful with people, and that the way he loves people would really uh, affect who they are. 
my daughter is a natural, she's my oldest, she's a natural leader. She came home from school one day and she said, Dad, I started a bake club. I was like, what? She said, yeah, now every, every week I get to eat cookies for free. I'm like, genius. And other people are gonna bake them for you. This is unbelievable. And so pray over her that her leadership would be used for good. So it's all about how do we bless our kids? See, the, most homes are not filled with blessing, they're filled with cursing. And I don't mean four-letter words. That's a, very, that's a very shallow way to think about, superficial way to think about cursing. Cursing normally takes the form of like, you're just like your father. You're like every other person in this, you know, you're a loser. You always and you never. That's the language of cursing. Blessing is somehow, it's more than wishing well. It's some way it's calling forth life and opportunity. And what would it look like if your home was just a place of blessing? If tonight you went upstairs, no matter how old your kid is, I had one guy after the nine o'clock service, he said, I've got two adult children I need to call and bless this week. You bless with your lips and you bless with your life. There are tangible blessings, right? When you bless tangibly, you do it by either lifting a burden or giving a gift. You got a mom and she has uh, two young kids. Could I take the kids for an hour or two? What are you going to hear from her? That would be a blessing because <laughs> you're taking a burden or giving gifts. So Margie and I, we went to this really awesome, for our 12th anniversary, we went to this like three-night, really cool resort, you know, kind of pushing ourselves whether we could afford it or not. It's like, well, we're going to do it. And it's uh, and it was an anniversary trip. And so we even got kind of the anniversary discount. We did the three night. Anyway, whole point is it was a big deal for us. I get there and I'm up reading my Bible one morning and this older guy's also up reading his Bible. And oh, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm here for an anniversary trip. Oh, I'm glad you're prioritizing your marriage. This is great. So we talk. Later that night or the next night, we're down, you know, kind of in the lobby and there's live music and we're down there and I meet his wife and he meets my wife and we hang out one other time and just kind of saw them around the resort. Well, I get up the final morning to pay the bill and I go downstairs to pay the bill and I say, sorry, sir, someone has already paid it for you. I thought, what a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> and I texted, because we were close enough that I got his number. So I texted him, what, you know, what in the world, man? You know, thank you so much, you know, because everything was on there. Food and other things. It's just like everything was back to the room. And he said, encourage that you're prioritizing your marriage. Just wanted to be a blessing. You can be a blessing with your presence. You know, your kid's playing a game. He looks up, mom and dad are there. Just their presence is a blessing. So, how many times does something not get passed on to the next generation because we were unwilling to bless them? We were unwilling to make room for them. We were unwilling to encourage the gifts we saw in them. Finally, we need a funeral. You need a plan, you need a song, you need a blessing, you need a funeral. Look what happens here. Turn with me to chapter 34. Then Moses went up, from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan. Verse four, and the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. By the way, we see that it, this took 400 years for God's promise to come into fruition. 
And it was given to Abraham, but it's not going to get to be experienced until Joshua. It's just generational thinking. Here's what it says here. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Verse 5, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. It's interesting. He begins his, his life ends the same way his ministry began. He and God alone on a mountain. It says this, and he, that's the Lord, buried him, that's Moses. So the Lord buried Moses in the valley in the land of Moab opposite of Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. The funeral represents two things. If you're Moses, it means sometimes you need to leave. And if you're the people, sometimes you need to let go and move on. And both of those are hard. And again, all I know is the church world, but how many churches are not doing well because that pastor should have retired years ago? And we know why pastors don't retire, because they don't have enough money, because their identity is wrapped up in being a pastor, because they don't know what they would do if they didn't. But how many people, more likely in, the, in churches, they, all they do is talk about what God used to do in the past, usually through a person who's now dead? Ever been in that church? You walk in, there's a massive oil painting of a guy who lived like 100 years ago. And they're like, oh, when Dr. So-and-so was here, God was, that's when we built the building. That's when we built the school. That's when we did the addition. See, what happens in, in churches and businesses is, I'll give you a church example, is you normally have a man or men, men and women, and those men and women start ministries and those, those ministries get momentum, and that momentum turns into a movement. That's where I think we are. What can happen, though, is if the baton doesn't get passed, and everybody gets on autopilot and starts coasting, and everybody starts thinking everybody else is going to do everything, then it becomes a machine. And the, the whole church goes on autopilot, and churches can be on autopilot for decades. You can walk into a church like, this church is on autopilot. But then once it goes from a machine, it goes to a monument, and then it goes to a museum where you talk about what God used to do. This is very, 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 very common. So I want you to see what happens here. This is, this is what I think has to happen. Look at verse 8 or verse 7. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. What needs to happen is you need to grieve the loss of a person usually, and you need to move on. Do you see both in that passage? It says that the people grieved for Moses for 30 days. That's longer than most of us grieve for something. In fact, I, I wonder if, I don't know that Americans are very good at grieving and moving on from things. And we're, now, we're really good, like, right, if, if, if you have a baby nowadays, like these big companies, it's like, you know, three months for you, three months off, it's like, wow, okay, or six months off, I've heard some companies, like, wow. But if your dad dies, see you at work next week. You know, it's like, I don't know, what's more significant? What affects you more? I mean, I don't know. They're both very, you know, they're both life-changing. Life and death are. But there seems to be there seems to need to be a process, and this is for some of you. I mean, I don't know what's, you know, dad's, for some of you, dad's gone. For some of you, a small number of you, but this is, mean, you know, for some of you, it's a child that you lost. 
For some of you, it's a grandparent. And you're going to have to figure out, and we want to help you if we need to, we want to help you grieve and walk through that grief and remember and never forget, but in a healthy way, move on. This is what you would want. Unless you're unbelievably narcissistic, this is what you would want. As far as I know, I'm healthy. (laughs) If I were to die tomorrow, I would want my family to be sad. Really sad, hopefully. (laughs) You know, but I thought about this. This is So my kids are 10, 8, and 6. I'd want them to be really sad. But if my son, who is 8, if he is still, like, grieving this when he's in high school, if I died tomorrow, something's not right. If he's sad occasionally and wishes I was there and there are certain moments and milestones that aren't the same, fair enough, and rightly so. My fear is that certain people, and maybe some of you, you get stuck in the past. There's like a part of you that's back there, and we need to figure out, you need to figure out how to have the heart funeral. Because it says 30 days, that's a long time. Some of you haven't grieved hard enough. You need to cry harder. You need to get angry. You need to go through all the stages of grief. And what's interesting is what God gives them is is Joshua. Now, look, Joshua's not the same as Moses. But I was talking to someone recently who lost their dad. And I was saying, what what helped you get over losing your dad? And she said, this is going to sound weird, but when I had my first son. Obviously, your son's not her dad, obviously. But it was a milestone. It was a marker. It was a God's going to say in a minute, you're going to see this. He's going to say, Moses is gone, and Moses was so unique. It's like every generation has unique people. There's not going to be another Billy Graham ever. I don't think so. He was a once in like a century or multiple centuries kind of person. That doesn't mean we're not all called to do evangelism. That doesn't mean every other evangelist should feel bad that he's not going to fill stadiums. Billy was unique, and he's dead. And he wants us to move on. And so we have to figure out what to let go of and what to move on from. I'll show you this last place. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit, for Moses had laid hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And there had not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. He was unique, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And then we're done talking about Moses and we move into the land. What's interesting is Moses, the book ends like many books of the Bible do with a funeral and with Moses dying. And people go, well, why did Moses, why wasn't Moses able to get into the land? And there's two reasons for that. The first reason is the reason you've heard, right? Because he struck the rock and didn't speak to it. And that's true. And by the way, this is a warning about anger. (laughs) Moses struggled with anger his whole life. Remember, he kills an Egyptian when he's back in Egypt. And then he breaks the Ten Commandments the first time God gives him the Ten Commandments. And then when the people worship in the golden calf, he makes them drink that water. And then he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. So in one sense, be encouraged, because even Moses struggled with anger his whole life. Also be warned, because it seems like the consequences for his sin get greater over the course of his life. He's not able to go into the land. But it's symbolic, too. What does Moses represent? Moses represents the law. What does God want to tell us? The law will never get you into the land. 
The law can bring you up to it. The law can let you see it. But only Jesus can bring you into it. Because here we're told Moses is buried. We're told we don't even know where Moses is buried because it's not important and we're not going to build a monument to him. But if we get to the New Testament, all of a sudden we see Moses in Mark chapter 9. Moses is in the promised land. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses gets into the promised land, but it's not by the law, it's by grace, and it's with Jesus. And so this is our great hope. Our great hope, if we're saying have a plan and sing a song and be a blessing and have the funeral, Jesus did it all first for us. Salvation was a plan. It was God's plan. I'm going to live the life you can't live. I'm going to die the death you deserve to die. I'm going to rise on your behalf. I'm going to do it for you. And then the Bible says that our spiritual state, the book of Ephesians says that our spiritual state in Christ is called blessed. That's a, that's a state of being now because what Christ has done for us. And then Jesus had a funeral, right? We also don't know where he was buried. Like I told you when I was in Israel, they, they, don't, they don't know. They're like, well, it could be this tomb, could be this area, could be this area. No one knows where he's buried because it's not about his burial, it's about his resurrection. And Jesus, in a strange way, even told us, he said, I have to leave. Even Jesus had to leave. Now, I know he's with us always, Matthew 28. But Jesus says in John 14, I need to leave. It's better that I leave because then the Spirit will come and the Spirit will work through the church and the church will have an impact in the whole world. And so my, here's my question to you. Where, what is your plan? Do you have a plan? And it's okay. It's better to have an okay plan, you know, because then you can correct it and you can make mistakes and you can move forward and you can stumble and fumble and mumble and rewrite your plan. But you need to have a plan. What's your plan for your family walking with God? What's your plan for financial stewardship? What's your plan for spiritual growth? And then what did it look like for you to be a blessing? What if you just said, well, my, from now on, this car is gonna be a blessing. When I get into this car, I'm gonna speak good words. I'm gonna call people, I'm gonna encourage them. Some of you, you need to say tonight, I don't care how old your kids are, I'm going upstairs and it's gonna be awkward and I'm gonna bless them. And I'm gonna say something. Some of you, it's your compliments are just too expensive. You know, dads are a lot like that. It's like, we don't know what you're thinking. We don't know how you feel about us. And we need some encouragement. I'm convinced that most people who run off to Asheville to live some kind of alternative lifestyle are looking for their parents' blessing. They're looking for the blessing, it's at home. Somehow someone wasn't able to give it to you, it's time to give it. And for some of you, it's time to have the heart funeral. When I pray, some of you, you just may wanna go like, I do this oftentimes, I just do this to the Lord. It's just, it does something to my, my soul to do this with my hands. Lord, I'm giving this to you. It's time. It's time. I'm, I need to move on. I need to let go. I need to say goodbye and still remember and honor. Let's do that. And then we're going to sing the song, The Blessing. We're going to sing it over you to begin with, and then we're going to join you to sing it. The Blessing is a song that came out the week before the pandemic. It's the most viral worship song of the last decade. And I think it's because it speaks the scriptural heart of God. It is singing good over you. We're going to sing good and grace over you, and then we're going to invite you to sing. And I want you to think, who, you, who are you singing for? Are you singing for your kids? Are you singing for your nieces and nephews? Are you singing for our church? Are you singing for our city? Let's sing together. Lord, would you give us the ability to have a plan? That's why you gave us a mind and a heart and the ability to have vision and see the future. It's so that we would have a plan. Lord, would you give, especially dads in here, just the grace to put together a, an okay plan that you'll bless. 
Lord, would you just put somebody on our heart that we need to bless, Lord? Maybe it's someone we've cursed. Maybe for some of us, we need to just, we need to bless our parents and just tell them how grateful we are for them. Some of us, we just need to bless our brother or our sister, like our siblings. Lord, and I just feel in a room this size that, that some of us just have to have the heart funeral. Dad's gone. He was great. He was unique. He was one of a kind. It's not going to be the same without him, but we got to move. We got to move into the land. It does not honor him. He would not want us thinking this way. For some of them, it's mom. Well, would you give us grace? Would you give us community? Would you teach us what it means to grieve, but to grieve as those who have hope? We ask this in Jesus' name.